sure. Okay, was that so here sort we are. of clap? That, ah, it's a habit. You always gotta pick on that. Always, you know, it's non-stop. So, there, is that better? More there intentional? you go. right. <laughs> Been an ongoing joke with the clap to start the episodes. So, this is easy to count, though, because this is season two, episode one, and I know that for sure, so I'm not screwing up the episode count at all. And we have a very, very special guest today, the maestro himself, Mr. Stephen Aaron. He has been our uh, instructor and motivator for most of our collegiate careers. And uh, I mean, he was taught Neil Zaza. He's going to be teaching another interview, or he taught another interviewee we have coming up. And uh, we just wanted to reach out and talk to him, and get the latest and greatest from him, and uh, reminisce about all the fun stuff that we learned <laughs> under the uh, tutelage of Stephen Aaron. So, welcome so much to this first episode of the second season of Wood, Air, and Metal podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you both and to talk to you, and I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah this will be a blast. It will be a blast. So <clears throat> just a little bit of background. Uh, myself and Tim met each other in 2006 at University of Akron studying under Stephen Aaron uh, Classical. Tim was a madman and decided to go for classical and jazz, where I just was uh, a bright-eyed, uh, finger-style guitar player saying, hey, I can do classical. It's just fingers. Um, <clears throat> And then, uh, then I got into the reality of it, and it's not just fingers. It, 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 there's a little bit more to it than just that. So, uh, Steve, why don't we start out with like the typical thing? When did you get started uh, playing music, and who was the inspiration? You know, how how did you get into this whole thing? Well, I think like most guitarists, I came into it through popular music. I I played in uh, rock bands as a bassist when I was a teenager, and. Um, I played in jazz bands, and uh, when I was in college at first, I was in a band in New England that toured all around the region and um, as a bassist, and uh, knew that I wanted to pursue music seriously uh, with those experiences under my belt, but wasn't sure really which direction to go in, uh, knowing that electric bass wasn't the object of uh, a music major op option at really any conservatories. So I thought, well, I need to become a double bassist and go the orchestral route, learn how to handle a bow, or mm -hmm. I need to um, look at the guitar side of the electric bass guitar and um, maybe become a serious classical guitarist. And um, at that time, I'd had a little bit of experience in classical guitar, just like three months of lessons, and I decided, that's it, I'm going with guitar. So I auditioned at um, a couple of colleges for entry, as a classical guitar major and got in one of the places. The others, I just wasn't good enough to even get admitted. And um, the rest is history, I guess. So after a little while, you know, I did drop the bass. They overlapped for a couple of years, but then I let it go and um, focused on the guitar. So you started classical at the collegiate level, like before that, just those three months of lessons and then right in the deep end of the pool? Uh, absolutely. I, I really started classical guitar lessons at age 17. So had so you I was a, a classic late starter? Did had you did wow. you play guitar though still like along with bass? Were you sort of learning the chords and things like that? You know, I, I had just a little bit of knowledge. I mean, I had an electric guitar at that time, a '57 Strat, and uh, it was. I hope a you still have guitar. it. I wish I still had. <laughs> 
Ah, the mistake we make when we're young. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I sold it for what I thought was a brilliant profit, but nothing compared to what it would have been worth now. Right. Um, anyway, so yeah, I played a little bit, but only the most rudimentary electric guitar, not the kind of guitar playing that you guys do. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I knew some chords. That's about the size of it. Sure. Wow. So that that quite the that's a West Montgomery ish. I mean, he started later on as well, just like and ended up blowing up the jazz field. He kind of did that with class. I mean, come on, you, you were starting at uh, eighteen, and then yeah. you, you get you went up to the master's degree like straight through school, no break in between. Well, I had started college a little bit early, and um, when I went to the conservatory, I, I started at uh, Hart College of Music in Connecticut. And um, I transferred there from another school where I'd had a couple of years of academic courses. And I, I didn't want to do four more years of undergraduate. And so I asked the teachers if I could do it in three years. And the only problem was the guitar lessons. Everything else seemed to be on track for me to graduate in three years. And my teacher just said, well, you'll have to pass a junior jury at the end of your first year of lessons instead of a <laughs> sophomore jury, you know, or rather, a sophomore jury instead of a freshman jury so that I could be yeah. admitted to the junior level. And um, I thought that's going to be impossible. I've only been studying for a few months. And he said, well, it's worth trying. And so uh, I kind of dug in hard and uh, sure enough, I was able to pass. And so I got the, the undergraduate degree in three years and uh, and then went straight in for a master's. Wow. And where was the master's degree at? I started studying uh, at the master's level with a West Coast teacher who was recommended to me by a guy named Michael Lorimer, and this teacher's name was Thomas Patterson. Uh, Tom Patterson at that time was teaching at Western Washington University in uh, Bellingham, Washington, and it was the year before he got his job at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And so I was halfway through my master's, he got this other job, I followed him there, and I was in the first graduating class of Tom's at uh, University of Arizona. Awesome. And he's still teaching there now. Um, he's still maintaining his program as a full-time professor. That's amazing. Wow. So yeah, I studied with him, left and got a teaching job, conducted my entire career, graduate, uh, sorry, <laughs> retired from my job at University of Akron, which was six years ago, and Tom's still going. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're, just, you're just lazy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and he's really showing us how to do it. I, yeah. I mean, I guess if you like it that much, I mean, I enjoy teaching and I don't have any real plans to retire, but uh, that's, uh, that's a long haul right there. Yeah, so, it's pretty yeah. impressive. Wow. So and now you're... Oh, do you mind me buttoning in for a second? So, Steve... Go ahead, Tim. So, you. so you, were on, you were on this base, base path, and at some point yeah. you kind of suggested that you wanted to be serious about it, like, as a conservatory-level musician, let's say. But, but when did you actually like yeah. fall fall in love with classical guitar? Because kind of like so was it already seeding before you started, or did it happen somewhere in your studies? Or when when did you say, oh, man, I like I yeah, just no, love a, this? That's it's, a great question. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I had um, uh, a girlfriend when I was in the eighth grade who played classical guitar. You know, yeah. she played uh, a few Karuli studies. I mean, she's just a beginner. And at that time, I'd been playing blues a lot and some rock and roll on electric yeah. instruments. And when I heard that, I just, just was captivated. I thought, that's incredible. She can play the melody and the accompaniment at the same time. And the right. sound of it was just really beguiling. And so I got an instrument. And uh, I didn't start 
lessons until that year before my conservatory year. But as soon as I started lessons, I knew this was this was like immediately um, far more captivating to me than any of the musical endeavors I've been in before. Yeah. Um, I mean, I loved all the different uh, styles and I played a number of different styles of music, but this was just something special. So really it was from the very beginning. And, um, you know, it was just, you know, trying to imagine being an orchestral bass player, like it was a theoretical idea because I already played bass, but it just, it didn't resonate. I had no real uh, connection to symphonic music or to orchestral playing or to um, playing with a conductor, you know, none of that right. was uh, part of my world. And so it didn't really make any sense to follow that for me. And the guitar was just, I just loved playing solo classical guitar. Sure. Awesome. Oh. You uh, competed in the GFA. What year was that? And was you still in college, or were you still in college during that time, or was that after? So um, my experience at the GFA was uh, the year 1983, and um, that was the year that the GFA had the event, the convention in Quebec. And uh, I had started teaching at University of Akron in 1981. So this was after my second year at Akron. 82, 82. Yeah, after the second year, I was a young faculty member, and I was in my, you know, early twenties. Wow. So that. Um, do you mind if we talk Adam, about that? Adam, for first, for a second. No, no, I'm happy. happy can, to, I can remember it like it was yesterday. You know? okay. Adam, can you just talk to people who are listening who aren't classical guitar? Oh aficionados? yeah. What what is GFA? Uh, the GFA is the Guitar Foundation of America. They run a uh, well, they run a lot of classical programs all over the country, but they're known for the big international competition that happens once a year, and it moves locations. You know, it, uh, there was one at Oberlin in 2006. That's when, yeah, me and Tim went up. 2005. 2005. Five. So, okay. Yeah. So, to, so uh, the Guitar Foundation of America is the largest organization dedicated to the classical guitar in the Western Hemisphere. Um, there is a similar organization in Europe, but uh, the GFA is kind of the uh, the mothership for classical guitar in North America. Um, and uh, this annual competition they have, which takes place at their annual convention, has become kind of the most highly coveted guitar prize uh, in the West. Well, recently a few others have, have emerged that um, uh, are equally interesting for the competitors because of the size of their prizes, but the GFA, yeah includes uh, in the prize uh, a large uh, concert tour for the winner and a recording um, that they contract with Naxos Records. So this is a really remarkable prize. Certainly. And uh, the, the, the winner can play as many as 50 concerts in the, follow, in the year following winning, as well as make a recording uh, at their expense. So it's a really a remarkable push for a young artist's career. Right, yeah, Back Kickstarter. Back in 1983, yeah. I'm sorry, back in 1983, they weren't doing the tour yet and they weren't doing the recording. And uh, my experience uh, uh, led me into the finals, but I wasn't the first prize winner, so I wouldn't have gotten those anyway. But um, it was quite a remarkable experience and it was a great boost for my career at that age. Oh yeah, that's that's rem that's awesome. That's crazy. Yeah, so I guess anyone wow. who's listening, it's, it's kind of like a huge publicity thing for you, right, to kick off your stuff, so. Now you've made connections with different people that it makes sense. You probably got helped open up doors for little tours and things like that. And all exactly, kinds of what happens at these conventions is that we um, uh, hundreds of classical guitarists, like at conventions for any 
trade uh, converge on a location and they have a trade show uh, selling instruments and music and so forth. And, uh, and uh, in the case of the guitar, there are all those concerts, master classes and lectures. And uh, we all, uh, but most of the action happens after hours at, at meals and in the bars and, right. and late, late at night in hotel rooms or what have you. And there's a lot of visiting and hobnobbing and what you would call networking nowadays. And, and um, so sure, we, we meet each other and the people we meet, we tend to see again and again uh, throughout our careers at successive conventions, whether put on by GFA or smaller regional ones. And uh, in truth, um, it's a relatively small world we function in. And so uh, it doesn't take long to get to know kind of everybody. Right. Um, and this was the first large convention I attended as a young guitarist. And I certainly made a lot of friends that week uh, that remain friends today. So for instance, one of the other finalists that week um, was Adam Holtzman. And Adam became a prominent player as a guitar professor at uh, University of Texas in Austin. And uh, he was a student of his brother's, Bruce Holtzman, who's professor of guitar at Florida State. And um, those guys became good friends and, and I saw them many, many times throughout my career. And uh, you know, he and I, you know, we're hanging out during the finals that week, and we were both young, uh, young guys at that time. Awesome! Wild. <laughs> That's just <laughs> so. Within the course of what uh, around eight years, you went from never playing classical guitar to placing in the finals of the GFA. Yeah, more like yeah, like five or six years. Yeah, I, I know. I was just kind of pushing pretty hard. I mean. Uh, my teachers always said, you know, practice, you know, like X number of hours a day. And I just took them at their word. So I did, you know, they would say practice for five hours. I practiced for five hours. If they said six, I went six. I was maybe um, not independent enough to decide uh, to take a separate path and go only for an hour and a half. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> so I just like do what they said. I don't know. I just, I practiced hard. Um, and uh, frankly, uh, there were fewer of us then, I think, um, compared to the field that we're in now. I, I don't think I'd have succeeded as well with the level of playing I had then in today's world. The level of playing has has gotten so much better. But that would be true for all of us, I think, at that yeah, time. Yeah, sure. So that's, a, that's a good point about the level of playing, because I was just going to ask, well, eventually I was going to ask, but might as well segue into that. Now, over the course of your 40-plus years of teaching, have you noticed that like when... Uh, uh, let me back up for a second for reference I was reading an interview with a, a concert pianist I can't remember their name and they were a big uh, also a big pedagogue and they um, were mentioning that you know that when I started out the pieces that were the unbelievable difficult pieces were accessible only to the pros and it's like now I'm teaching these things to my 13 14 year old students you know and they're nailing these things right out the gate uh, do you find that same idea of like the difficulty in terms of uh, pieces at a younger age with more virtuosity is becoming commonplace today as it was compared to your start? It's been a very steady progression. I mean, almost with every passing year, the level has gotten better and um, the quality of playing of young people has increased particularly. And this is a direct re uh, res uh, result of uh, increased in the quality of pedagogy. So uh, when I was a student, um, I mean, certainly my teachers taught me how to play guitar, but there were so many problems they didn't know how to solve. Um, 
at least not in any kind of reliable and consistent fashion. Sure. And that would be true, I'd say, for pretty much all the teachers on the scene back in the 1970s. And um, for instance, um, it was kind of standard among guitarists to regard a player who could hit all the notes in a piece as having arrived at the pinnacle of, um, of the field, because it was so uncommon for a guitarist to be able to play through a whole piece without making mistakes. It's like, to think of that now, it's just so absurd. But um, uh, it's like the way we learned music and the way we analyzed, the way we used our hands and the way we used our bodies and the way we trained our minds to understand what was happening it was so juvenile and so um, kind of basic compared to what happens now. So, sure. um, for instance, um, you know, the students who came out of the programs then went on to teach maybe at a, at a higher level than their teachers brought uh, to the game. And then our students, like my students, I'll speak specifically, um, brought to the game not only what I taught them, but what they picked up along the way in master classes and what they discovered on their own. And they teach at perhaps a higher level. And then their students, you know, again, more so. But then if you look at the field today, and the tools available, the resources available. I mean, just point to YouTube as, as um, kind of the, like the, the resource beyond all resources. All right. I mean, imagine uh, to, to, when I think about what it would have been, would have been like to have been able to hear and watch any piece I wanted for free instantaneously and play it back at half speed if I want, and then see ten other people play the same piece and compare the fingerings all for free from the comfort of my bedroom. It's just like, it's unbelievable. And um, oh, yeah. and that's what people have available to them today, not to mention all the additional resources, online <clears throat> masterclasses and tutorials and and um, the scores are available instantaneously. And it's just, you know, when I think about um, the struggles we would go through to get our hands on scores or how far we would drive to see a player perform just to hear a piece, um, you know, it's just a different world. And so with, with those uh, resources, in addition to improved, more uh, sophisticated pedagogy, the level, of course, has come up and up and up. I will say that um, I like to imagine that I played a signal role at one um, specific juncture, and that was the um, Guitar Foundation of America convention in 2005, which I hosted in uh, Oberlin the second time I hosted a GFA convention. I insisted um, when they asked me to do it, I insisted that if we were to have a convention at Oberlin, that it would be necessary to have uh, an international competition for high school age and younger contestants. And they'd never done that before. It's always been the adult, you know, no age limit. Um, and there was like, oh, I don't think there will be enough players that are good enough at the high school age or younger to have a competition of this level and I said yeah. I assured them that there would be and I said don't worry this will be good and I'll tell you when that competition took place in Oberlin and those finalists played in Warner Concert Hall with, in front of like seven or eight hundred people the, you could hear the jaws drop on the floor of that hall as the quality of the playing revealed itself they were as good as as or better than the adult uh, professional players in the uh, older level competition the international uh, collegiate artist concert uh, competition and it's been that way ever since the younger ones 
are just pushing the bar every year. And it's because they have fantastic teachers and they have all these resources. Sure. So I shouldn't dismiss also the quality of the instruments. Like a lot of great luthiers creating really great instruments and um, uh, understanding better how to set them up. And uh, for instance, when I was a student, everybody was chasing uh, large size instruments. I had a Ramirez guitar that was 665 scale. This is um, a centimeter and a half longer than what yeah. we call standard scales, which is 650. But a lot of guitars really um, thrive better with a shorter scale instrument, a 640 scale guitar, and more and more luthiers are making them. And people are consequently playing instruments better suited for their body sizes. And there's just better results all around. There's there's a fair amount I want to unpack and all that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I, I, no, no, it's good. It's good. The, the, I think we definitely have seen all the things you're seeing too, right? The advancement. I don't I mean Adam and I were right before, like our formative years at least, were right before the internet really took off. So we were still scrounging right. to find like tapes or whatever of some right. thing that like piece that no one's ever heard of and you can't even find in the library and you try to go some other library to find it or you couldn't just immediately get a piece maybe you could get on the internet then and it would you could download a song all night you know and maybe it worked right. the next day and you could hear it so um one of the things i wanted to question we so adam and i've talked about this a few times but when you listen to violinists let's say from the early like 1920s through the 50s if you can get recordings there was a lot more um i don't want to say artistry but let's say interpretiveness to the pieces so you'll hear bach and it's almost like romanticized a bit and it has it has such a like you can almost identify the player instantly upon hearing them but there's sort of been this trend where that's not really acceptable anymore um to romanticize bach for instance um and there's there's sort of you, you're losing a little bit um the quality of playing is better for sure um the performers are better in the classical realm but they're sort of losing losing a little bit of like personality or something to each piece i'm wondering do you notice at the same time that the the performances are getting better the quality is better is there a more of a sameness to the results or is there still a pretty um individualistic way of interpreting tombs and actually i'm curious too if if you think that's a good or bad thing so i know where i stand on it um being who i am whatever but i'm curious what you think about it and how that trend's happening have you noticed the same thing and and the, the, hopefully that question yeah, makes a, sense that's a great question so it's it's definitely true that um prevalent styles of interpretation uh go through sort of cyclic evolutions and and uh, you can say there was a, uh, a height of um, sort of performer-driven, opinionated interpretations, what we might call highly romanticized uh, in the mid-20th century and kind of a reactionary movement after that where things were treated uh, with uh, maybe a little more strictness. And, um, and this, when it's combined with um, a, a sort of avalanche of players whose technical proclivities sort of outstrip their precursors uh, by by just um, miles. Uh, so we have players now newly able to do technically what was almost unthinkable earlier, but yeah. but maybe without the uh, the artistic impulse 
to stake their own territory with respect to interpretation. Um, but that, again, uh, A, it's kind of, you could sort of see it as a little bit cyclic because I think it's come back the other way recently where um, it's more common to see players bringing truly original interpretations to pieces than it had been, let's say, um, in the previous couple of decades. But also um, the uh, arrival of our instrument um, to be stand shoulder to shoulder with, say, pianists and violinists in terms of technical ability um, enables then the guitarists to turn their attention more freely to matters of interpretation. And as a consequence, um, we can, uh, we'll see far more uh, players whose interpretations are really um, brilliant and, and inspiring than you might have seen in recent, recent years previously. But that doesn't mean that everybody's doing that. Like it's yeah. certainly possible to find players whose um, performances can seem a bit mechanical or can seem uh, a little timid with respect to interpretation. And, um, and so, you know, I think we exist in a world um, in which all, the, all these things exist simultaneously, you know, and uh, there are certainly regional influences. You can talk about um, the school of playing that comes from Central Europe or that comes from Central South America or that comes from the Far East. Um, yeah. And that there might be, you know, things that you could generalize. But even so, I think uh, it has more to do with in the individual impulses of players. And uh, I'm happy to say that uh, the players who seem to be rising to the top in recent years are ones that I find to be uh, very, very creative indeed, and ones who are bringing some, um, you know, remarkably original voices to the field. Right. And, and not just with respect to, um, let's say, the interpretations they bring to familiar works, but with respect to uh, programming in general, you know, like what pieces they play and how uh, adventurous they are with... Uh, uh, finding and creating new repertoire. Uh, yeah, interesting. I mean, you got uh, Johannes Mueller, who's got like two CDs of original works on top of his GFA win and that uh, traditional quote unquote classical repertoire that he's playing. I, I thought he was brilliant, personally. Right. I mean, this is the same kind of path I followed because I also have two recordings of completely original music. And, and you know, I think in, in a way, all my colleagues are looking for ways of adding to the repertoire like for instance um writing your own music is just one way to do it you can also arrange music for the instrument like i've done quite a bit of that yeah. uh, where you bring um, music originally written for other instruments uh to the guitar and in doing so kind of expand the repertoire uh, another thing is to work hand in hand with composers and um you know be the one who champions their music and maybe give the premieres and 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 that's a really important thing to do. And a lot of my colleagues are spending uh, good portions of their careers dedicated to that. And finally, there's uh, the work of musicologists, you know, bringing uh, sort of hitherto unknown uh, works or composers, uh, maybe to the light of day, uh, people uh, whose music might have been lost or forgotten. And so I think that in all these arenas, uh, most players are doing um, one or another, if not several of those things. I remember uh, myself and uh, classmate Gary Stewart went through the archive 
at the University of Akron doing the GFA recordings. I think we did like 300 tracks over a summer uh, for, for that just to record some. And these are guys that I don't even remember some of their names. It, it, they're so obscure, you know, uh, turn of the century or turn of the 19th to 20th century. Uh, composers and guitarists that it's just like okay let's go to the next one and i mean gary was brilliant on do, you basically look at the thing okay ready ready do it we do it record it and move to the next track but uh that was pretty wild to kind of get a view at the the unknowns you know like the the popular ones obviously rise to the top and everybody can recall you know just uh, their works but these other guys that were just kind of sitting in the background it was just interesting to see why, you know, in one sense, you could tell why they didn't come to the forefront. It was like, well, that's that's a song. Okay, let's move to the next one. Uh, but in other ones, it was like, oh, that was really cool. You want to? I'm like, I'm disappointed that didn't get more of a prominence that was out there. But that's uh, you know, obviously subjective to me to an extent. Um, but I, I found that whole experience fascinating. It's uh, it's um, in addition to being subjective, it's also subject to a certain degree of whim, like um, the music that. Let's say um, the prom most prominent recording artists of certain generations, say Julian Bream and John Williams, um, the, the composers that they recorded uh, became the composers everybody was familiar with for sure. many years. And then the composer, uh, the, the prominent artists of the next generation, uh, let's say uh, David Russell, Manuel Barueco, uh, Elliot Fisk, and um, uh, so on. Um, then suddenly they bring new composers and new works that we hadn't heard of before to prominence. And then now younger compo uh, sorry, younger performers are doing the same thing with um, even more obscure works or obscure composers that we didn't know of before. I, when I was coming up, it was really popular to dismiss music from the 19th century categorically. Like, well, that's just guitar music of that period is second-rate music and there isn't very much of it and you know we can cry a salty tear that we're not pianists because they have the good stuff and and uh, we'll just focus on our Latin music you know but uh, when you get back in there and look at what we actually have and look at it in the context of um, trying to play it with some awareness of style and some awareness of context some awareness of um, how the music was imagined and, and um, envisioned by the composers, uh, then you realize that there's actually some very good music indeed. And uh, I think the problem had more to do with um, prominent guitarists um, dismissing it before really understanding how it was supposed to sound uh, and not really giving it uh, full the full attention it deserved. And so now we start to see concert artists programming Carulli and Moretti and uh, com composers who we kind of dismissed in earlier generations. But this music is really terrific, much of it. And um, it starts in the hands of specialists who are using 19th century instruments and playing as historical um, performance practice specialists. But now uh, it's sort of little by little entering the mainstream. And we see people entering major competitions playing works by Moretti, for instance. It just would have been uh, unthinkable 25 years earlier. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, you'd mentioned arranging. I, I think one of the things I recall originally meeting you is I think at the time you might have just finished the Chopin stuff or you were in the middle of it or something. Just growing the repertoire. But yeah. I guess just to talk about you some more since you're a guest. Like, so what drove you to take on some of these challenges? I mean, like, that was a monster effort, I'm certain. 
um, to put all that yeah, together. So you're referring to um, uh, a project I did in the early 2000s, uh, arranging solo piano pieces by Chopin uh, called Mazurkas. Um, Chopin wrote more mazurkas than he wrote of anything else in his repertoire. So there were over 50 of them. Right. It's not that I looked at that and decided, I'm going to play 50 mazurkas, you know. It, yeah. It's a little bit more organic than that. And, you know, there were a couple of them I thought were charming and I, I might, I thought I could uh, make work on the guitar. And I just... So is that, so that the impetus for it? You, you kind of obviously enjoyed listening to Chopin. You heard some of those and you said, you know, that might actually work, that one. And that one might actually work. I think I could work that out. Is that kind of how it you know, I think um, since, since I started as a classical guitarist, really from very young, uh, for some reason, um, I, I began a process of imagining the music I heard as played on classical guitar. Like my brain would just go to that. So yeah. if I'm listening to popular song, it's like I would imagine it played as a solo piece on the guitar. If I'm listening to an orchestral work, I'm imagining it on the classical guitar. And certainly when I listen to piano music, I just it just sounds like guitar music to me, but really good guitar music. You yeah. know? And so, and I had heard quite a bit of Chopin growing up. My mother was a Chopin uh, fan and we had LPs in the house and so on. And so it was familiar to me. And, um, but the mazurkas, there was something about them. They're just not too long. They weren't too fast. The, the textures weren't too dense. It wasn't yeah. like, if you listen to music by, uh, let's say, Debussy, you know, you can, yeah. he's using the lowest notes on the keyboard, he's using the highest notes on the keyboard, and the pedal's always down and everything's ringing. And it uh -huh. just doesn't sound like guitar music. But when I listen to the Chopin mazurkas, it just, I could picture this music on the guitar. So I would uh, just try to find out the key, figure out what key it would work most comfortably in and I would just get out my pencil and my manuscript paper and start writing and um, so I created a short set of them maybe three or four of them and I played them in concert and uh, I just really liked it and I decided to try some of the longer ones and um, then I got in about 20 or 30 of these mazurkas I thought oh, I'll just go for the whole set you know yeah. and this is maybe uh, personality flaw I have, you know, where I just can't resist the sort of bibliographic approach to something. <laughs> like, I can't just leave it well enough alone. I have to do them all, you know. And there's no question that there are a handful in that set that are a bit of a stretch to play on, the so on solo guitar. Yeah. But, you know, I figured out how to do it. I found a way in and I recorded all 51 of them. So, in doing so, you know, I added uh, certainly um, a couple of hours of repertoire to the solo guitar literature from a period of music when we when we don't have music of that quality in some ways sure uh, certainly be argued and um, uh, I just really think they sound great on guitar so uh, now I don't know to the extent to which anyone else has been playing them but I hope that people try them there they're really wonderful and then a project that uh, took my attention after that but in the same style was the Songs Without Words by Felix Mendelssohn. It's another uh, beautiful uh, collection of solo piano pieces. Um, some of them are truly too difficult for a solo guitar, but I found about 30 of them and arranged them and, and brought them out in a book. But those uh, two, I, they just sound remarkable to me on the guitar. It's like the best guitar music you've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, some of them, you know, they're, they're just not as difficult to play as you might imagine. You know, they fit kind of nicely on the instrument. So, yeah, it's a labor of love. I mean, I love the music. I'm jealous. I want to play it. So I just make it my own. Sure. <laughs>
I, I have that book right over there, The uh, Complete Chopin Mazurkas by You. I've looked and I've played through a couple just to see about adding them to the repertoire uh, for a concert, but I haven't done it live just yet. So. <laughs> well, I hope you do sometime. They're awfully fun to play. And, and uh, of course, some of them are pretty hard, but uh, others are quite accessible, quite easy. You know, I just always suffered from piano envy, so. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. For sure. I, uh, on, a, on the topic of piano, I don't know if you've heard this guy, but uh, Vikinger Olofsson, he's an Icelandic pianist. And, and he's, I mean, he's recent. It's, it's, I think he came out on the scene like 2012, something like that. But his, uh, his Bach album is just unbelievable. Like, I, th that's on in my house so much, it drives my entire family crazy. You know, it, it, his playing is just sublime, and I was... Uh, just to kind of shout it out there, because I've been in the piano envy camp for a while. Once I realized <laughs> Who is it? what it's capable of, it's like you can do anything on this thing. Yeah, exactly. Every guitar player that knows what a piano can do should have some case of piano envy. It's like, oh yeah, I, I just can't do that. But I'll that, have to look for him. He sounds wonderful. Oh, he's he's sublime. I just wow, just wow. And it, maybe it's. Uh, uh, because I, I'm listening through like high-end headphones, but the detail in terms of his uh, just the interpretive and the, the voicing and the control throughout it is just stunning. Just I, I sit there with my jaw open like how do you maintain that awareness of where you're at just even volume-wise with each one and continually the entire piece is consistent. You know, if he's going up to where it's forte, it's always going to be at that particular level. And I'm pretty sure that's not happening on the mix end of things because it starts out super quiet and you know it's like it's clearly they have if any compression just a little bit to kind of like taper the edges but it's oh wow just uh, okay i gotta stop otherwise i'm gonna keep raving about it so <laughs> something to look for thanks yeah. for that yeah. recommendation now it's funny that you mentioned Debussy because that also was the inspiration for your three musings if i'm remembering right from reading that and so on, just that uh, style of impressionistic writing. Yeah, it's true. I, I love the sound of impressionistic music and uh, find we don't have very much in the guitar repertoire that qualifies, right. that has that effect. And so um, that was a little piece of a uh, group of original pieces with that um, sort of uh, sound world in mind, that sort of harmonic language. and. Um, Again, you know, beautiful to play, really fun to play on the guitar and, and, and fascinating uh, to get those textures out of the instrument. I'm not the sure. only um, composer who's tried uh, to look for those sounds on the guitar, but um, so little by little, sort of 100 years later, we're getting uh, music in sort of that vein. Which is I, I think it was extremely successful. Um, yeah. You know, just I remember listening to them when you posted them or whatever, and I re-listened today and I've like you said, it's not something you generally hear on the guitar, really, right? It's, I'm not totally sure why. I'm not even sure that it's necessary. I would be curious if your take on it is extremely difficult to play or not, but what a vibe. Like, it just, it sounds so good on guitar. And it, just imagining it in, uh, you know, in a great hall or something, too, and just the way it would fill the space. And I mean, it's sort of breathtaking the way it sounds. It's amazing. Well, I'm really tickled you like it. Uh, it's um, the pieces are not easy, you know. Like one of yeah. them is a tremolo piece, and so, you know, the tremolo. If you can play tremolo, it's no harder than the other tremolo pieces in a way. I mean, I use the entire neck, 
of right. the instrument, but so does Barrios. He uses the entire neck of the instrument. So um, uh, in a way, the tremolo piece is easier one. Uh, the others have some, some complexity. But, um, you know, again, we're talking about the level of the playing, even, uh, you know, among junior high school age students. So I guess I'm not too worried about uh, how difficult my work is um, yeah. for uh, relative to other people's ability to play it. Like some of the more recent pieces I wrote, um, uh, I wrote uh, these suites for um, guitar in three different styles. Um, one group is kind of inspired by Latin American styles. One is a little bit more jazz and blues influenced. And then the other is uh, a little bit more impressionistic and sort of neoclassical. But um, they were initially conceived as studies to help advanced players improve their skills. Yeah. And I finally um, sort of came to grips with the fact that they're just a little bit more adventurous than the average etude, and, and they really sort of deserve to stand as just concert pieces. But they, that doesn't mean they don't have sort of a, an etude quality in the sense there might be a specific technique that's featured in each one. And yeah. so, for instance, there's uh, there are ones that have um, uh, slurs, let's say left hand uh, hammer-ons and pull-offs as a focus. And so uh, if you're particularly weak at slurs, uh, if you can master this piece, you'll get good at slurs, you know. or um, sure. Let's say um, uh, harmonics. You know, it's a piece that has a, a, a lot of different ways of playing harmonics in interesting um, conjunction. And and so, if you were to uh, play the piece, um, you know, it would teach you how to do harmonics in the way a study would teach you how to do it. But they're fun pieces to play. Yeah. Something. Something yeah, I wanted I to go. Oh, go go ahead. No, it's all to you. It's all to you, Tim. Well, I was going to change topics slightly because, but just to reflect on something you just said, which is initially. You, you had mentioned how in the 70s and stuff that maybe just getting through a piece was enough, right? <laughs> it's like, right. And I, I just wanted to reflect on an experience I had with you. And I, I recall one time, and uh, I worked really hard, I thought, to get a piece up to speed. And I think I had all the notes basically right or whatever. And the timing yeah. was essentially right, you know? Um, but I played it for you and you were kind of like, yeah, but you didn't actually play the piece. Like just getting through the notes, like it, it was a really good moment for me as a musician because unfortunately at the time, I think I thought just playing the notes was enough, right? Like almost like a computer, like getting to that point and you were kind of like, okay, well you're about 5% of the way where I thought like, man, I just busted my butt to like get to this point. And I thought, like, I was just going to, like, wow you or something, you know? And you were just kind of like, yeah, okay, well, we got a, we got a lot to work on still. <laughs> like, this, we've, we're not even, like, close. But it was, it was great. Like, I, I always, like, reflect on the, that moment of, like, what is music, you know, these kind of things. Like, what makes something really great? And then, it, I guess I'm not totally sure where I'm going to go with all this, but, like, also just the point of, it doesn't have to be complex or not complex or whatever. Just making music was such is such a big deal, and even playing three notes or something takes a level of mastery to really do it right. And uh, I was I always really like think about that now. Like every time I play or whatever, it's all those little like it's all the little things and all that make it really important to how you express yourself and what a like huge effort it is too as a as a you know as a listener as a practicer of music to even reach those levels to to play 
at the level. I, I, I guess what it must have been happening during that time that you you switched from okay, the notes are enough to getting that sort of artistic interpretation um, stuff be, became so much more important in honing that in. Um, I'm imagining you've had this experience probably with every one of your students at some point where you kind of had to well, say like, here we are, like, okay, now let's really start playing some music because I don't know, I'm gonna let you go. But. Well, I, I think, you know, what you say is fascinating. Uh, on the one hand, I'm sorry I, I, I uh, <laughs> burst your balloon there. That was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I, I do think that um, there's little that's more humbling than being a serious musician. Yeah. It's, it always feels like, um, the better you get at it, the more there is to learn. Like sure. the more you know, the more you don't know. And um, it's it's truly uh, the journey of a lifetime to be a musician. Um, certainly when I was uh, just starting, I didn't know about interpretation because we were so, um, so much, so we were in such a safe struggle over just getting the notes as you point out. But um, little by little, it becomes clear that that's only the entry point, you know? Yeah. And, and then uh, what you do with those notes is really what it's about. Uh, although your, your uh, observation that maybe I have that experience over and over, it, it is true that uh, this is the experience of many students, although ironically, some of them come in and they are like 99% interpretation and 1% skill at landing the fingers mm -hmm. in the right place like like they're all emotion and feeling and yeah. they have all the right impulses but they need to work on finding the discipline to actually you know working on the mechanical parts and so everybody sort of has their strengths and and their you might say their superpowers and their weaknesses right. and and so everybody's got something to work on i will say that um uh for myself um i've only just now uh, feel like I understand how to learn a piece of music, you know, like like I finally get it <laughs> Like if I'm gonna get up and perform now um, I I feel really confident that I'm gonna do exactly what I want to do on the instrument that things aren't gonna go sideways And I'm not gonna fall off the saddle in the middle of the show, you know, it's yeah. it's because I know what to do but it took me my entire life to figure it out <laughs> and I will say that to the advantage of the younger set, um, they're getting this younger and younger. And um, I'm, I'm just thrilled for them. And I'm thrilled to the extent that I can be the one that helps many of them to the, you know, in my own teaching. Uh, they can find, they can figure this, like the, get their hands on the secret sauce, you know? Sure. Um, but it certainly took me a, a very long time to figure it out. And, um, you know, because it's, it's a very, very complex task we're engaged in. It's, right. not, it's not purely athletic, although it's definitely partly athletic because we're trying to make our hands do incredibly difficult, incredibly complicated things. And we're asking them to do it uh, in stressful circumstances. You know, well, you know, we're in front of people, there's people watching, we're in front of a microphone, we're recording, whatever. And it's, um, it's very difficult. And then in addition to that, you're trying to plumb the depths of your soul to come up with, you know, uh, an interpretation to have that has meaning, not just for listeners, but for yourself. You know, you want the, the performance to, to feel like something, to mean something. Otherwise, why are we doing it? You keep coming back to that. Um, 
we're not doing it, at least I'm not doing it to impress anybody. It's like sure. if you hit all the notes and it's really, really fast and it's really, really clear, uh, there are those who will be impressed by that. But um, that's not really the game that I'm playing. You know, sure. like that's it's really. But um, in order to make all the pieces of the puzzle work, you know, that the interpretation is authentic, that it's original, that it's yours, that you can tap it at will, and that your hands will um, behave and operate the way you want them to at will every time. And this is this is the journey of a lifetime. Certainly. Yeah, it, it also, and this is not a negative, but it, it also made me realize that I had to, to pick what I was going to focus on and that the amount of effort really to get become like a world-class classical guitarist or whatever was not the path that I was on. And I, and it, but it's only because I had so much respect for what I saw when it's like, kind of like I got a glimpse of the light of what it really was. And it's something that I strive for in my music, but like what it really takes to be that was, it's, it's really like a hundred percent sort of dedication to that craft for quite a long time. Um, but let's say that, that, that yeah. that's the exact dedication you need for any craft. Absolutely. So, absolutely. For, yeah. So for instance, um, uh, like uh, the extent to which I dabble with and, and uh, have admiration for the great American songbook and all the jazz standards that yeah. maybe were the bread and butter of your work as a jazz musician, um, you know, and, uh, let, let's say in the context in which I'd done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of arrangements for solo classical guitar, it'd be very easy for me to sit down with those pieces and arrange them in a way that's compelling or convincing Certainly. on a classical guitar. But I resist doing so because to me, the language that I'm speaking it, it, in that particular musical style needs to be the language of improvisation and yeah. not the language of making a hard and fast decision, writing it down on paper, and then doing it like that every time. It's yeah. like, well, it'll sound like you're improvising, but but you know, it's not the real thing. And, sure. Um, so I tend to resist doing that, you know, even though sometimes I feel compelled to try. Um, like I remember um, encountering for the first time uh, the great Roland Dean's uh, jazz um, standard arrangements, which are really fun to listen to, and I've taught them as a teacher a number yeah. of times. But to me, they're they're kind of this shadow of the music, you know, because yeah. um, I'd rather hear someone who can do that sort of on the fly. You know, that's the skill. Right. Yeah, I noticed that. I forget who I was watching. They were doing a, they did an arrangement of Autumn Leaves. And I was like, well, all the notes are there. Yeah. But, you know, it's like it, it, it works. It's, there's the melody and it, there are some interesting things, but it wasn't jazz. You know, and uh, I'm but not. Maybe a, it was, but maybe it was jazz in the hands of someone who with just less experience. You know, like. Oh well, yeah, exactly. Know that, you know, exactly. That was my point. It wasn't bad. Like I'm not knocking on <clears throat> yeah. that, but the difference between them and uh, a, a straight up jazz guitar player that just opened it up and just comped it is night and day. You know, um, just for stylistic reasons, it's like you can't. Uh, it's very hard to serve two masters when you're dedicating something to guitar. I mean, that was one of the things that Neil brought up uh, uh, with the, the interview. It's like he was studying with you, and he got signed for an electric guitar label at the same time. He's like, uh, I can finish the classical thing or go for all in on the electric. I'm going to do that, you know? And so he, he yeah. pursued that for obvious reasons. And to well, and Neil, Neil made the right decision. I mean, you know, he knew where 
his heart was and, the, and where the opportunity lay, and I, would, I couldn't have applauded him louder. You know, we, we oh. all met at the University of Akron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I taught there for 34 years. And um, I always loved teaching there. I, that, this was, of course, my bread and butter for my career. I got that job when I was 24. And, um, and I saw many, many classes of great musicians come through there and uh, find their way into the world as professional musicians one way or another, uh, which has been very, which is very gratifying for my career. But um, one of the things that, that I remember in particular um, was the extent to which uh, the students were strivers. You know, uh, I didn't have uh, classes full of um, students who had, uh, let's say, the, the golden spoon in their, the silver spoon, so to speak, in their mouths. You know, people had to work for it. People were paying their own tuition and, uh, and yeah. working really hard to make ends meet. And as a result, uh, they learned to, what I used to call hustle, you know, to, to, to hustle in the field of music from a very early age. And I remember very vividly uh, having um, a prospective student sitting in on class once with his parents and um, the you know I invited them to ask some questions of the students who were there and um, and of me and um, one of them asked uh, do any of the students do any teaching and I said oh well they all do teaching in fact let's count how many students my students in this classroom are currently teaching and I had maybe 12 guys there. And between them, they were teaching over 150 students. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It was like these parents' eyes popped out of their heads. It's like, you're kidding me. And, and I'm telling you, yeah, they make like $20 an hour doing this. This is back in the 90s or whatever. Right. And, um, and they were like, this is unbelievable. These guys are making money and they're teaching like that. And uh, it's because... Um, the students who came to the university realized that uh, they needed to be working professionals right from the get-go. And of course, I always encouraged them, um, but um, they were willing to do it. And I always was very impressed by that. And as a result, many of them uh, found success uh, in no small part because of those efforts they engaged in as uh, when they were still students. It's a very interesting yeah, observation. observation. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Adam. And while I was at the university, no, I was going to say I remember landing my first teaching gig while I was at the University of Akron. It was like, wait a minute, I'm getting how much? All right, <laughs> I can live with this. And you know, it ended up uh, that was at Lentines when Lentines existed out yeah. in Fairlawn, and I had 30 students teaching there, and it was yeah. great. And uh, then they shut down, and I, you know, that caused a little bit of chaos. But I ended up doing my own thing for a bit, and then working for Kurt and working my way around different teaching situations at the Laurel School. And then finally, sure. Kenyon kind of dropped into my lap. It was one of those, uh, 
last minute interview things where I was getting a concert program ready. So I had a couple of pieces set and it was, I got an email from somebody saying, hey, Kenyon's looking for a teacher. And I'm like, well, the, the worst thing that can happen is nothing. That, that, that's it. So, so I went out and uh, did the uh, interview, which was basically a master class. And, and now I'm there all the time. So it's, it's great. I, I love it. I absolutely love teaching, which is an, an interest. And I like concertizing as well, but I'm also a realist in the sense of I, the consistency needs to be there and I need to eat and I need to have the financial freedom. And the only way to do that is to teach, you know, unless you hit a certain level of uh, concertizing, which nowadays is God only knows because it's always in flux, depending on if we're open, if they're shutting everything down or uh, in the current pandemic situation. So uh, well, I couldn't be more thrilled about your job there. It's uh, wonderful, wonderful that you found that position. Oh, it's great. I, I really, really enjoy it. And uh, like I said, it, it basically building the program from the ground up from the, the last gentleman that I uh, uh, took over from. And it's it's wild to watch. It, w one thing that's interesting for me is to see students suddenly get into classical music when they come in from like a rock background or an acoustic fingerstyle thing. And I'm like, well, you signed up for classical. We're doing strict classical. That's it. Let's go. And uh, just teaching them how to even because some of them, most of them actually don't know how to read a look of music. So it's like I'm starting from the ground level and showing them this is an E, this is where you play it here and so on. I and M and going through all the, the absolute rudiments. And by the end of the semester, you know, they're finally playing some simpler uh, Karkovsky pieces and so on. And they're like, I absolutely love this. They're like, I, I got to keep going. And that to me means that I'm hitting something correctly. You know, if I well, can that's that that's exactly what it is. I mean, you, you have to actually do the heavy lifting. You have to do the teaching. It's yep. like when I first got hired at University of Akron, um, there were a handful of students there, but they really were starting at the beginning, you know. And so it's just you have to create it. So uh, I taught them what I thought they needed to know, just like you're doing. And uh, before we knew it, you know, we had a real functioning program where they're playing repertoire and so, you know, it, it's a great way to spend your time. You know, I have no regrets of any of it. And of course, um, the position I have at Oberlin Conservatory, uh, which began in 1992, um, you know, I've been there for a long time now. So uh, a similar legacy, if you like, uh, my position there is not a full time one, but I've had uh, many times a studio as large as or larger than the one I had at Akron. Yeah. Uh, so it's um, it's a terrific group of guys. and. Um, and uh, it's just a really fascinating challenge to be involved with day to day, trying to bring the young players along. Now for a place like Oberlin, I'm assuming just because of the reputation of the school, there's a certain pedigree that's looking to get in there. Do you, do you find a difference um, in that for one? And I guess, you know, I'm thinking about Adams building Kenyon upright. How do you get to the point or how much influence do you think you had into the point of almost like, let's say, recruiting higher level students so you can grow the program and it starts to get a reputation? And, yeah, you know, it's easier to take the person at third base to home home run, right, than it is to take the person that has three strikes and, you know, whatever, ready to strike out. No, no, that's that's very well put. And that's yeah. uh, that's uh, a good observation. I mean, uh, recruitment is part of um, what we do as professional teachers always in the sense that 
um, when we travel around playing concerts or give masters of lex or, or, or adjudicate contests or whatever it is we're doing out in the in the field, we're always keeping our eye out for potential students who might want to apply. And so, and we certainly forge relationships with them when we can, and and that counts as recruiting, but it's also just getting to know people. It's pure yeah. pleasure. Um, but uh, to a certain extent, um, the type of people who audition and apply to Oberlin uh, self-select a little bit. Um, so I tend to get very few uh, applying who aren't already pretty advanced. Sure. Which was not the case in the university. Um, you know, uh, at the at Akron, we would sometimes get people entering the program who really didn't know how to play. You know, I'd kind of show them from the beginning. But at Oberlin, they already know how to play. They already have experience. Many times they've played in guitar ensembles that have given public performances. And, you know, they have uh, a bit of a resume, if you like, already. And sure. oftentimes very, very good technique. Um, in fact, uh, it's not uncommon. And certainly for the last 10 years, it's been more and more common where... Um, my entering, uh, like the equivalent of the high school seniors applying to go to Oberlin are every bit as good as any doctoral candidate anywhere in the country. <laughs> you know, like these are fully formed professional level, virtuoso level players. And they're just high school kids, you know. Yeah. And so um, that's not uncommon. It's not uniform. It's not universal, but it's it's not uncommon. Um, and so... Um, you know, there's recruitment uh, to a certain extent. The the sort of name and reputation of the institution itself does a lot of that work. Um, but of course, uh, you know, my own work has an impact also. Certainly, that's interesting. So, what do you do Did for I get those? To your question? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, that's just. I don't have my own program, and I'm not really seeking to do that. But I sometimes I've thought about like, what would that take? Right? How do you go from a base level thing to becoming the prominent school but i think some of you said there made a lot of sense this is to a me question, uh, i'm sorry this is a question that really pertains directly to what i did in at university of Akron. right because uh you know here we have um a school that was not known for music particularly and certainly not known for guitar yeah. and a handful of students who were rather poorly trained before i got there or not trained at all and <clears throat> And I had to figure out like what what's the method, what's the path to get it from here to being a prominent uh, guitar program, a well enough known guitar program that I'd get good applications from from ex serious players from all around the country. Yeah. So like, you know, on the one hand, I'm trying to teach the individuals how to play guitar. On the other hand, I'm trying to build my program like that's the job. Yeah. I have to build the program. And so, the way to do that, um, I determined for myself was. Um, to uh, first uh, invite guest artists to come to the institution and teach master classes and play concerts. And this wasn't just because I thought that students would benefit from the classes, which they did, but it was because it uh, created um, interest in the press. And so we would end sure. up with articles and photos in the newspapers about guitar at the university, which was very helpful. Um, Plus, I'm then, imagining uh, that... The point of making... Oh. Okay. I was going to say, plus imagining that some of the great players you had performing for the master class teach, you know, guest, that they're like, hey, there's some great players that, in Akron, right? That that starts to get spread too, right? The networking. Sorry. Right. The word starts to get out. Not yeah. just that uh, the students can play, but that there's a program there that supports 
touring serious professional musicians it's like yeah. uh, become part of the circuit you know um and then and then the next thing was to form alliances with all the serious guitar players and teachers in the region so i was new in ohio when i got hired of course and so i reached out to john holmquist who was up at uh, kent state university and uh and cleveland institute and i reached out to laura stravanian who was at baldwin wallace conservatory and george bachman who was at kent state stark and you know there are a number of players who were like the lead um teachers and uh i offered to come up and play for their kids or and i asked them to come down and play for my kids and we tried to do some collaborations with them and before long you know we were fast friends and, and we had this um it effectively like an alliance and yeah. um uh, we would start to feed each other's programs to support each other's concerts and you know there's a little bit more of a a sense of the region instead of just our own individual little uh, programs and then of course the other part of it is just hitting the hitting the turf and playing concerts you know so um to build the program you have to reach people who are still in school so that meant playing in the high schools and so i just every week for years i would go out and play solo uh performances and little presentations at all the area high schools and i would go as far as i needed to you know just drive my car around and uh and and of course playing regular concerts and anything i could do to get myself out in public you know yeah. and i was again i was in my 20s doing this and, and um by the time um i'd been at university for six or seven years it started to feel like okay I'm going to host the GFA now. And I did. I host the Guitar Foundation of America convention in 1988, which was my seventh year at the university. And we had Julian Bream as our headliner. And um, <laughs> whoever that is, you know, it was an incredible event. It was the best attended GFA in history. It was just an amazing event. And um, when I think back on it, I have to laugh because we not only did it without cell phones and without the internet, we didn't even have word processing, you know, like we had to, I had to write everything out in longhand and give it to a secretary, I had to type it, who had to send it to the typesetter, you know, like it was just, it was old school, you know, but we, we made that thing happen. We had um, uh, Jorge Morel and David Tannenbaum and David Russell and uh, the LA Quartet and Oscar Gilia, and it was just endless. So um, anyway, so you have a big event like that and then all eyes are on your school all eyes you know the national attention is focused on this program and um and it was shortly after that the gfa asked me if i'd like to host the guitar foundation of america archive because i obviously had this hopping program you know and they wanted it to be at a place where there was a real program and i'm thinking wow this is great and yeah and so you know like it was just additive you know little by little you do things and and uh of course part of the result is that the students who come uh have a little bit more experience down the pike you know and um we build the graduate program and before you know it it's uh it's one of the players Jimmy, you talked about hustling you're a hustler right i mean sure to get to that point i mean just what it takes to get there mm -hmm. I, you know a lot of times we see it you know there's musicians kind of wonder why things aren't working out for them but they're not trying to get gigs and they're not putting out records and they're not networking they're not doing all these things but that's just what it takes right even today i think this you can't maybe you get lucky and you put a video out and something happens but more this the tried and true method is still the same method right it's still going and do those gigs for the high school and going to go just meeting people and making sure you're at these events and talking to the luthiers and talking to this you never it's know it's, it's the whole thing right 
it's it's work. It's hard work. Yeah, you know? it's hard work. And 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 you're always doing it. You're you're never off. Um, nowadays they call it entrepreneurship. You know, which is a fancy word for hustling. You right. know, <laughs> and um, I feel like I remember the day that uh, I discovered uh, one part of the industry. Uh, I'd had uh, Bill Kanengeiser was my guest, and he was playing on our series at Akron, and after. Uh, he put out on the table where we took the tickets, he put out his latest CD and another CD and a couple of books that he'd published. And then he ended the first half of his concert with the really great piece that he had published his arrangement of. And then he ended the concert with another really great piece that he had published his arrangement of. And after the concert, he sold so much stuff. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, that's how you do it. You know? Yeah. Uh, just learning by watching and, and a, a few years after that I had my own table full of books and records you know that I had made because I realized uh, according to uh, a really nice way to put it um, that I heard coined by um, Matthew Hinsley an Oberlin graduate who's now the uh, head of the Austin classical guitar one of the big nonprofits in our field um, he said uh, poetically that you really need the largest footprint in the industry that you can get you know, you need to be in, have your fingers in all the pies. So it's not enough to perform. It's not enough to teach. It's not enough to record. It's not enough to publish. It's not enough to give master classes. To um, you know, work with uh, the industry on um, cultivating or selling equipment or instruments. It's not enough to um, advise people. You have to do all those things. Yeah. You know. Or whichever ones that you and your personality can bring yourself to do. You know, like not everybody's going to be able to do everything. But the more, uh, the larger the footprint, the more success you'll find. Sure. And I think that I just found that, you know, I was able to do the publications. I have a lot of publications out now and a lot of CDs recorded. And, you know, I'm teaching a lot and, you know, doing the contests. And, you know, so we just sort of do little by little, you do it all, I guess. Yeah, sure. What, what, what do you think gave you that drive? Do you, do you ever reflect on that? Were your parents hardworking or, um, you know, what, what was it? Was there somebody in your life that you've aspired or inspired you aspired to be like or anything like that? Or were you just innately more like that? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I had no shortage of inspiration, but uh, you know, I think we are who we are. Like it, it, some of this is just baked into our personalities, you know, yeah. um, for some reason, I just sort of had the capacity to kind of do more than one thing at a time and, you know, kind of chase all these dreams and, and, and not really realize that there might be a failure along the way or not really worry about it. Just sort of chase, chase the idea when I get an idea, you know, um, I have, a um, my stepfather was a cartoonist. And he uh, was a self-made man and very inspiring in this, he, an artist and a cartoonist. And he would um, hop on the train with a portfolio under his arm. He, we lived in Connecticut and he'd go down to New York City and he'd go to the offices of the New Yorker magazine. And he'd sit down with the cartoon editor and put his work on his desk and try to sell cartoons. Every single week on Wednesday, he'd go down there and hustle. And then the ones that the New Yorker didn't buy, he tried to sell to Look Magazine and Saturday Review right. Magazine and whatever, all the other magazines. And he became one of the top cartoonists in the country. Um, and I had a, an uncle who was a musicologist. Um, and, you know, he started as a scholar writing um, about Charles Ives. 
and um, little by little um, he became more prominent in the field and at the top of his game he was the editor of the New Groves Dictionary of Music and Musicians American Edition. He was the chief editor and was considered the Dean of American Musicologists before he died. And you know, but like I didn't hang out with him and talk yeah, music. Right. He was just uh, at the family gap. But but he was out there being like a professional. You right. Know? You, saw it, like, wow, you, you saw what it. You saw what it meant. Yeah, you got a glimpse of what it took. I saw people who were yeah. Who were living the life of a professional artist or musician uh, in one you know part of the field or another. I had another have a second cousin who's a, a well-known drummer, and um, he was playing in a band on the Jersey Shore, and that band broke up and he got hired by another band, which back then it would have been uh, 1970, 1969-1970. He got hooked up with a guy named Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> and uh, he was the drummer of the E Street Band. Um, a guy's name is Max Weinberg. And what a career he had, you know. Sure. And he was just like a local drummer in a local band, just like I was a local bass player in a local band where I was. And, um, you know, we were each following our own paths. Max did incredibly well, and uh, but I didn't have a lot of contact with Max. It's not like yeah. we hung out and talked trade, you know. It was just like, wow, this cousin of mine is doing so well, you know. Sure. Um, but it's just like an example of, of what's possible. I mean, part of it is serendipity. We got luck, you know. Um, part of it is our personalities. Uh, some of it is certainly talent, but more of it is probably just hard work. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Gotta have the hustle. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I tell the students this and they look at me sometimes like, what am I talking about? But, um, you know, some, you, these are things you can encourage, but you can't really teach in a way. You know? yeah, sure. I distinctly remember something uh, that you were telling us. Uh, I, it, um, I think it was with, I was sitting there with Mike Poplinski. And uh, you were mentioned, just talking about different things and career-wise, and one of the things you said is just don't quit. <laughs> He's like, are you, I, and I might be, you know, remembering, misremembering, but I, the quote to me was, there was a lot of other players that could outplay me, but they all graduated and put their guitars in their case. And that was it. It's like me, I just made a, a bet with one of my colleagues not to stop till we got to this certain thing. And the next thing you know, I got there. And I took that and I'm like, I'm going to do that too. That's right. it. The guitar stays out. I'm just going to aim at it and no compromise. You always keep pushing on it. And yeah, eventually, I, I, to, to tag on the serendipity thing, the Kenyan thing could kind of drop there. But I would also say that the consistent practice, the consistent keeping those skills up, it made it so that when I went to that interview, even though it was like, you know, I had three days notice, it was, I, I could do it rather than being like, oh my God, I got to come. It's like, no, I, I have stuff ready. Let's go. Exactly. Probably should change you my strings. Yeah, right. Yes, that would. <laughs> we were we were undergraduates. I was hanging out with my roommate, who was Nick Galusis, who's now the head of the guitar department at no, Eastman College of Music, right? <laughs> yeah, and we decent. were like, you know, how are we going to make it in this field? And it was exactly that. It was like, well, let's just not do what all our classmates did. They quit. Let's not quit, and that'll be our pact, and we'll be the last guys standing, you know, and. Um, and that does seem to be the way it ended up after a fashion. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's something that I tell, like, the students of mine that are, are really interested in it, I'm like, the biggest thing is to be consistent and not stop. That's it. 
you have to keep it going. And stuff, the opportunities will come up, but if you don't have something in your back pocket ready to go, you're going to lose it to the guy that does. And so you got to be that guy. You know, you don't have to be the next David Russell. You don't have to be the next. And I'm, clearly, I'm not in that league at all. And that's fine. But the point is, is that I'm constantly working at it. So when the opportunities come up, it's like, yeah, sure, I'm ready. I don't have to go, oh, I got to I got to pull that, blow the dust off of the guitar and start going again. It's like, no, I got it sitting here. I'm good to go. What do you need type of thing? Right. And all those skills that I picked up from your classes, particularly the arranging class, which was murder on my free time, because that was like, it was only like two credit hours and I was putting in like 18 hours a week on that class by itself. Um, cool. Yeah, that uh, that was brutal. I had to take it twice. The first time I just wasn't ready theoretically. I didn't have the background. And then once I got that, that second time through, it was just like there was so much meat in that class to devour and get ready. And, you know, one week, here's your piano score. You have one week to arrange this and play it next week. Good luck. And I was just, just, just at the time I was dating Julie and she's like, this is crazy how much work this is. I'm like, yeah, that's part of it. And now that's routine for me. It's basically like if I'm doing a wedding and they want something arranged, I'm like, OK, I want it at least three weeks before the wedding thing. If you want it arranged, that'll give me time to write it and get it set and everything else. It's like in the routine. Boom. You know, it's, so you guys just life, these are these are life skills for a real uh, professional musician. Exactly. And that's uh, I think that's the there's this illusion of success that people take from watching artists of that. Oh, they just get up there and play. I mean, at least maybe I'm talking from my own experience watching uh, different performers through every type of genre. It's like, oh, they're, they're just up there. And then when you start working in it, you realize like, no, they live in this all the time. There is no off switch. You know, it's uh, one of the, the uh, contentions that I have with my wife for vacations is uh, I got to bring a guitar. Like there is no vacation without a guitar because I just sit there like, twiddling my thumbs and it's like what I could be working on something and it's an enjoyment obviously I love doing what I'm doing but it's like I have to I'm, I'm always thinking in it without some way to get it out I'd start well, this is um this is good I mean in many ways you uh, you have a lot of the same impulses that I did like like when we would go on family vacations like everybody else would be chilling after being on the beach all afternoon it might chill is to be arranging more of those Chopin or, you know, or uh, right. sitting at the table. I'm just always writing and doing, you know, the, the ball never, uh, the wheel never stops turning, you know? Exactly, exactly. And um, you just sort of use your time little by little. And, you know, I don't worry about trying to get things done in any hurry. It's just like in the fullness of time, you'll get through all these things and then sure. the next project comes along, you know? Yeah, I think it's that like, happens to be the undergirding thing for okay. every. I was just going to say you have to think there in a, like decades or something, you know, like you're, you're not, you have to think about like right. next week, like be thinking this might take a while, but it's all right. Yeah. Go ahead, Adam. Sorry. Yeah. yeah there must be a delay. But. No, I was just going to say uh, with all the uh, uh, artists that we've interviewed, that happens to be the undergirding thing is that it's just constant. There is no off time. Neil was the same way. He's like, I'm constantly working. It's like I go on vacation. I take my interface to my laptop and the guitar and I'm working. It's just part of it. And sure. that uh, one of the things that uh, Neil dropped, he's like, if you think I'm intense now when I'm working and just the, the load of focus, he's like, take that away from me and see how I get. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, this last vacation that we were on in North Carolina, it, the wife and kids were at the beach all morning when I was back at the camper 
practicing and working stuff out on the guitar. And then I would join them after lunch, you know, after I felt like I got work in, you know, so I could focus on having fun for a bit. And then I'd come back and be thinking in guitar and doing everything else like that. It just becomes a uh, part of you. And I, I remember when uh, I was uh, studying with you, you would mention things like that. I'm like, how the heck do you get to that point? Like <laughs> what, what gets your brain to click over? And it was just one of those things that just kind of happened. All of a sudden I went from, you know, casual in the intense but casual to being like that's it this is it Every, everything comes focused through this lens now and uh I, I can't pick like a date but i know that there was a switch on my brain where it's like this is it this is all that i'm doing everything i'm that i sit down it's like i have my daily routine it's wake up get the kids to school come down sit down practice to from nine to noon i don't move you know and then if i have to leave to go teach at the collegiate thing i do that if i have private students and if i don't have that from 12 30 to 3 30 when i pick up my kids i'm sitting down and practicing the entire time so good and it's working for you <laughs> and that's uh, something that i try to instill in my students i'm like if you want to do this it has to be that part of you and it will happen through consistency. Like I, I always, it, it, with uh, your syllabus, it was, uh, you know, it should be at least three hours a day type of thing. And where I'm at now in the program, I don't have any majors just yet. I got a, my first declared minor, which is great. And she's doing fantastic. Uh, but uh, I'm always like, you at least got to put in the time that you have for the lesson every day. And if you really want to improve, it should be triple the time. So if you're taking an hour lesson, you know, the, the, the same mentality of that. But it has to be something where you rotate everything else in your life around it. It's gonna be, this is my practice time, that's it. Not when I'm done with this, I'll get to practice. Practice is work. And so for myself, I noticed when I stopped calling it, I'm playing guitar now or I'm practicing and went to I'm working, everything changed for myself mentally, but also the appearance to everybody else. Cause you know, if it's like, oh, I play guitar and they kind of think, oh, what he's doing. They're sitting there getting high all day with an instrument, you know, in his hands and trying to do something. And it's like, no, this is work. It's, the I'm problem working. has for us has always been the word play. Yep. Sure. Yep. It's a handicap in our field. Everybody thinks we're just playing. Right. <laughs> like playing video games, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's uh it's it's fun to see students when they click onto that. I had this one uh young student, she was like six, um and she wasn't in the classical thing, but she was a, doing a singer songwriter with the ukulele. And she like was co constant I was blown away every week, a new song, like lyrics and chords just going. And I, it, it, she just worked it. And everybody else was like, well, how did she get to that? I'm like, she does this all the time. Like she's walking around her house with her ukulele and sits there at night with her notebook and writes it out. It's, it's, it's part of her. And, you know, I'm telling this to my uh, teenage students and my older students. It's like, this is what it takes. You know, if you, you want to do that, this is where it's at. I, but again, you know, we each have a personality. We have our our own ability to focus like that. So it won't be the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm sure we've all had this. It's like you play a gig and somebody comes up there like, oh, I wish I was so talented or something. And it's like, well, you could get there. You just got to put your eight hours a day in for 10 years and or 15. You probably do it faster than me. <laughs> Cause I'm not very smart. So it'll take me a while. It took me a while to learn a lot of stuff. You could probably do it quicker and then, but nobody wants to, yeah, like they don't put the work in. So it's interesting. Well, they just think you're born with it. Yeah, they do. Right? <laughs> Definitely not. Oh, Maybe so talented. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, I hate that, that word. That, that's, that, that's that, another, that meme where it's, 
I'll just say it's another handicap yeah. word, talent, yep. right? Anyway. Absolutely. And talent equals hard, hard work. That's right. Yeah, there, there was that study that came out about the prodigies at Juilliard and, you know, the, the quote-unquote childhood prodigies versus the rest of the students that uh, would show up at Juilliard, and they just found that the prodigies were in the practice room 20% more than the other ones. That was it. They're like, the kids just practice more. And, you know, between six and eight hours over the course of a year, that's a huge amount of time that the other person has gotten in versus the good musician, you know, to, to kind of put a label on it. It it's always, always the challenge to the teacher to get the students to practice more. And that's, uh, that's yeah. the, uh, the gold standard. <laughs> Just, you know, practice more. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. and it's it, also, you know, I spend a lot of my time in teaching trying to talk to the students about what they should be doing in the practice room. And, you know, a lot of times there's time wasted. Uh, so you, much. Know, uh, you might even say the, the vast majority of time they spend is, is yeah. wasteful, you know. And um, so we spend a lot of time sort of refining uh, how to use that time and, and how to make decisions about time management and um, uh, how to solve problems and recognizing problems. And in that way, they, they can make their progress in, in better time. But it's a, it's a challenge. You know, it takes years to sort it all out. I, I remember something you said to me, and it, it's really helped me through the rest of my life, actually which was, I think I was struggling because of my schedule was crazy. And I was, I actually, I was teaching a bunch too, like 30 to 40 students. And I, you know, was double majoring and I never had time. And like to get like three hours in a row was impossible. Right. And even getting like an hour sometimes was impossible. And you're like, well, do you have 15 minutes <laughs> or something like that? And I'm like, yeah. because you could just work on one thing for 15 minutes and you make a lot of progress. And like, mm -hmm. that was actually really a life changing sort of thing for me, because that's sort of how my life is now. It's always like these fifth, sometimes there's, I get six hours or something, but a lot of times it's 15 minutes here. I have guitars in every room in the house, you know, I can grab and just work on something, focus on it. And you could really sort of nip something in the butt in 15 minutes. A lot of times that was a struggle. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Just a focus 15 a minutes. Yeah. That's that's really wonderful, and I love that you remember that. It's um, you know, I find that uh, I would often do uh, some of my most productive practicing in the five minutes between when a student was supposed to show up and when they actually showed up. Oh right, <laughs> you know, like oh, I got five minutes here, probably, you know, and you just sort something out, you just sort of answer a question, and and uh, just uh, the accumulation of small uh, investments of energy like that is often enough. Yeah, mm -hmm. but. During those minutes, you're 100 percent yeah. focused on solving the problem. Absolutely. Yep. That was, that's the big thing. It's not necessarily how much you practice. I mean, that counts, but it's also how you practice and where your focus is. I learned that once I had Sam. It was like my free time just swoop. I have an infant. So how the hell do I get in a couple? Of, I, I don't have a couple of hours. You know, no, exactly. Being so, a young parent is a perfect example of very this much. Challenge. Yeah. yeah. Like, how do you balance the keeping the kid alive and practicing at the same time? So, well, you figure it out. You really do. You know, it, it, it's one of those things where it, I didn't have an option. You know, it's like either quit where I'm at because I have a kid or figure it out. Obviously, yep. I chose to figure it out. And uh, that's just it. You know, you there's any amount of excuses that life will throw at you to not do it, to not put the time in, to not, well, I can't practice because I got this going on. It's like, you have to make a decision where you're going to lay with that. And sure. it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it 
totally can be done. And so if someone students, I, I kind of like, it's one of those things where if they're, they're coming in, well, I couldn't have time. I had these other things. And I'm like looking at them like, really? Let me tell you what life is like on the other side. <laughs> you know, part of me just kind of is like, do you realize what I've sacrificed to get to this point? Uh, with that, and uh, I sound like a grumpy old man uh, at, at times, but uh, it's part part and parcel for the course. That, and sometimes I'll, I'll drop something in a lesson. I'm like, that was totally Steve. It's like you were sitting over my shoulder, coming through my mouth with giving him a point or a critique. It's like that's that's a totally Steveism on that one. Oh well, I did spend enough time underneath them to, to have those things. So <laughs> my name has become a noun, Steveism. <laughs> It's part of it, you know. We have to take those uh, th those gems that stay with us forever. That were, right. in the truest sense of the word, they were life changing in terms of the approach to the guitar. And we well, keep. I, well, when I had you guys in the studio, I mean, my biggest challenge was to try to get you to point the neck in the right direction. <laughs> I know. I said we never fix that. <laughs> never fix that problem at all. The two of you plus my, plus uh, Tommy Guarino. You know, the three of yeah. you, both, yeah. all three left handed. Incredible. Yeah, it just kind of happened. And then you, you had us going like, well, Steve's left-handed, but he's playing right-handed. Yeah, he's a the traitor. The <laughs> traitor there. I'm a traitor. <laughs> Always happen. <laughs> oh, geez, those were, those were some crazy times. I mean, I remember when we uh, bought, uh, me and Plablinski, and I, I don't know if Michael Issel is in on this as well, but we bought diapers and sent them to the Oberlin students because we were just kind of picking on them for being so young. It was like, here you go. Here's your Hal Leonard book and diapers, you know. It, it, uh... Yeah, there was a, a very cheerful uh, com uh, competitiveness between the yep. two studios. Yeah, it was good fun. A whole lot of fun. I missed the oh, Akron wow. studio, no question about it. Sure. The if you were gonna sit down and tell a student what you thought was the most important thing when it came to practicing and so on, what would that be? Well, truthfully, the the most important thing for every student, um, regardless of where they are technically, is to remain at least somewhat aware of why they're doing it in the first place. It's like if artistic accomplishment is at the forefront of their awareness, then they'll do things in a way which is artistic. If uh, they're looking for a little bit of poetry in the music, they're looking for beautiful sound, they're looking for a way to communicate music that, that makes people want to hear them play another piece yet and hear, listen to them more, then I think they're putting their attention in the right direction. Clearly you have to solve technical problems in order to play beautifully, but um, it's too easy to focus on the technical challenges at the expense of the artistic message. So I would just say, you know, always remember why you're doing it and look for and believe in your own, your own voice. It's like, it's not about sounding like some other person. It's about finding what you want to sound like and then working to bring that so other people can hear it. Awesome. That's why I've always liked you. Wow. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we all need to sound, we, we should end up sounding different because we are all different. You know, I think there are some studios around the country where the guitar students tend to sound more similar to one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like to imagine that, that my studio is not one of them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Very 
I'm going to chew on that for a bit. <laughs> well, it's great to see both of you, and it's great to talk to you. I appreciate being uh, invited to be part of your series. Yeah, we, oh, yeah, we appreciate great. it. We've been looking forward to it for a long time, so it finally could happen. And thank you so much for spending the uh, hour and a half or so with us and dropping all the knowledge bombs that we can take. So. All right. Well, <laughs> good luck to both of you, and I look forward to crossing paths in real life. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Steve, right. Steve like one more thing. Thanks again, uh, Steve. Steve, to, yeah, find, to find your stuff, um, yeah. is that stevenaaron.com? Oh, yeah. If they, people want to find your books and your music, and is that a good place to find uh, it? My website is stevenaaron.com. Stephenaaron.net. Okay. And um, but you know, if you just Google me, I've got like 150 videos on YouTube and uh, countless articles on a blog on my website. I've got so many articles on this blog that I put a new segment on the blog called the Blog Articles Index. And so you <laughs> click on that, and you can scroll through quickly to see what the pieces are about. Many of them are about how to practice and what to do in the practice room, and other articles about what the students are doing and on stage at the college so awesome uh, well, well we'll make sure we steer people your way too so thanks so much yeah appreciate it thank you bye guys bye.